break. Um, if you weren't here last week or you're here for the very first time, um, then this won't be a ton of context, but we're taking a little break from our study of the book of Acts. Ten weeks ago, 11 weeks ago, we started journeying through the book of Acts, kind of verse by verse, exploring really what it meant not only for us as individuals as Christ followers, but what it meant for all of us to follow Christ together, this sort of context of community, the call of what it means to be part of a group of Christ followers. And we're going verse by verse through the entire book, and you know we will land on it somewhere down in the future, but we're breaking up in little segments, and we made it through chapters one through four, and we, we kind of took a little break, and, and we started this little mini-series last week as we started exploring our, uh, our, our life as a church in, in this time of year when we begin to look at our resources and how we're going to plan and think and dream about the future. And, and I told you uh, last week that every year when we do this, when we begin to think about budgeting and dreams and, and kind of where God is calling us to be and what that means for us, I tell you that I have one singular goal for this community, and that's really that we would develop a culture of generosity biblically-based generosity that sort of gave away our hearts, our lives, and our resources. And that's really my singular desire for this whole thing, is that we would be biblically generous. And not just talking about our resources at all, but with our very lives, right? With the sort of intentionality of our lives. And I also told you last week, and if you're here for the very first time, it's important that you hear this, that this church does not want your money. Like, this is not a little two-week series to try and guilt you into, you know, giving another $5 so the kids will get a snack downstairs or whatever. Like, that is not it. Like, we don't want your money. I deeply believe that God will provide for this community um, in a way that he sees fit. What we want is you to give your heart to Jesus. Like, the only thing that matters to us is that you meet Jesus and that he changes your life, and then that will reorient the way that you think. And so what we want you to do is surrender your whole life to the Lord and not be guilted in or think the only time the church cares about you is when it's time to start thinking about stewardship and resources and financial giving. It really has nothing to do with who we are at all. But we deeply believe that our resources play a huge part of our relationship with Christ. In fact, one of the things that's one of our greatest tension points in our own relationship with the Lord is what I have and what you're calling me to give away. And I told you for the past few weeks that if we grasp this one principle, right, as followers of Christ, our lives would change. That my life and everything I have belongs to the Lord, period. That singular principle, if we truly understood it, would change everything. Then I would be thinking that God is not trying to get his hands on my stuff, and my job is to guard it at all costs. It belongs to him. Everything from my wife and my kids to my card and my bank accounts, it's all Jesus's anyway, belongs to him. I get to be a steward of the resources that he has given me. And if we could grasp that concept, the way that we see the world, people, church, life, everything changes. So what we want you to do is to come face to face with who God is, right? Surrender your life to him and deal with that principle. God, what if I truly believe that everything I have belongs to you? So we don't want your money. We really, really don't. You need to hear me say that because I know that if you're going, no, you know, I've been to a lot of churches, man. They all want our money. It's never about money, but it's always about money, right? That kind of deal. Like the truth is we don't. God will provide for us. I'm I'm not in any way concerned about that. I want you to deal with the Lord. And and so that's kind of why we do this. We take this time to explore biblical principles about what the Bible says about our resources and about our life. And last week, we opened up this two-part series by really exploring some of those financial principles. And we looked at Paul's letter to Timothy. I think it was the second, maybe it was the first, oh, first letter to Timothy. And we explored some of these principles. And what we talked about when it comes to our financial life, we talked about a few things. The first thing we talked about was that false teaching was real and it's dangerous, right? We kind of explored it in a couple of categories. We explored it 
from the Jesus plus something that, you know, the, the church wants me to give or people want me to give. Or I surrender my heart to Jesus plus something, but we talk about how it's just gospel only. It's not about Jesus and praying enough or giving enough or whatever. That Jesus plus nothing, right? And then we talked about the health and wealth lie, that if I give my money away, God will bless me in return with more money and the sort of lie, the health and wealth gospel. False teaching, even coming out from our, our pulpits, our churches, is very real and it's very dangerous. Um, we kind of explored these principles amongst that kind of window. That we are called to cultivate a heart of contentment. Like if we could find a place in our lives where I was content with just saying, Jesus, you are enough for me, right? If I could cultivate that heart, um, that's an incredible kind of victory in our life. We also talked about the idea of resisting the love for money, ultimately resisting greed, right? We talked about how we are driven towards this love of stuff, desire for stuff, desire for resources. And then finally, not to follow the wrong love. And the Bible teaches very, very strongly that we can love God and we can love money, but we can't love them both. One wins. And we really explored those in depth. So last week, we looked at this bigger picture of our financial resources. This week, what we're going to do is we're going to explore what would happen if we actually came together as a church, together, all in, for the gospel. What would it look like if we decided that as a community, we were going to adhere to a few of these principles and see if God wouldn't use those things to change the world. So if you got your Bible, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 14 for the second part of this look um, this morning. So, um, and as you get there, let's take a moment and let's pray. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. 14, 13? Yeah. Sounds like something in history happened that year. Um, Matthew 14, 13. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that uh, you are a God who is in control of everything. Everything from our financial world to our family life uh, to our relationships, you are in control of everything. You are sovereign. God, you are a God who moves in our lives. And so, Lord, we, we just ask that as we sit here this morning and we hear a very familiar story, that you would open it up in a very new and exciting and fresh way to our hearts. As you sit there this morning, just ask God to teach you, to instruct your heart, to reveal himself to you. Take a moment and pray for the person beside you, in front of you, or behind you. Pray that God would move in them, be in the habit of praying for other people. discover truth on our own. You teach our hearts. And so God, I pray that that's exactly what you would do. You would instruct our hearts. We love you. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here. We thank you that your word is living and active. God, it is sharper than a double-edged sword. As you say, it penetrates dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. God, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God, your word is alive. And we pray that you would teach us from it this morning. In Jesus' name. So, very familiar story to take a very different angle at it today. Um, we're going to be looking at this sort of, what I think is really the second most kind of well-known miracle in all of Scripture. First being resurrection of Christ, second being Jesus feeding the 5,000. And we're going to take a look at it, not so much from the miracle moment, but from what I think is really 
happening inside of that, that miracle. Let me give you a little bit of background first before we read it, though. Jesus' cousin is John the Baptist. For those of you that aren't kind of caught up on your New Testament family lineage, they're actually cousins. John the Baptist was Elizabeth's son, and he was Jesus' cousin. And John the Baptist has been arrested, all right, for a kind of a long kind of standing feud with Herodias, Philip's wife. It's a long story, but basically he was talking against their marriage, and so she had him arrested and beheaded. So John the Baptist has been arrested, Jesus' cousin, and he has been beheaded, and his head was brought before her on a silver platter. It's a graphic story. You can read the beginning of chapter 4 or chapter 14 to kind of see it. Jesus finds out this information right as our story unfolds. He finds out that his cousin, his friend, right, had not only been arrested, but had been brutally murdered, killed. And that his head had been severed and brought to um, the sort of Roman rulers, if you will, on a silver platter. This is what Jesus finds out as our story and this encounter unfolds. Let's look at verse 13. When Jesus had heard what had happened, this is the news he just heard. When Jesus had heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns, and when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's getting really late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down in the grass, taking five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks, and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the people. And they they ate all, and they were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000, besides women and children. This is kind of an interesting message if we're actually talking about stewardship and resources, but I think it's extremely fitting because what I want you to see is that there's something more to how we think about life and how the church should think about its existence than about what we do together to fund our existence and movement and things, right? This story is actually a really powerful one about priorities and about people. And I want to use it today as an example of not just who we're called to be, but what if we pulled out some principles that should really shape and change the way we think about our life together, all right? Because the story is really powerful. We know the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 people gathered together. Jesus feeds them all. It's amazing, hand clapping. I mean, it's just cool stuff, five loaves of bread and two fish. But what we very seldom take into account is what is unfolding in the situation, right? that Jesus had just received this news that his cousin had been murdered brutally. You know, as, as much as Jesus was God, his thoughts and emotions are really human. And he's singing about his aunt and even his mom and what that would be like and, the, and John and his disciples and all of those things and all those people that knew this man and what that meant. All those struggles and fears that were there within He's so moved that he withdraws to a solitary place by boat. Crowds follow him around, and then we have this sort of miracle unfold. And as we step into this, what I want you to see are two real characteristics about Jesus that I think we know, but we oftentimes miss in the middle of this. And this is going to set us up for where we're going. And that's this. The first two things about Jesus are that Jesus made people his priority. Now, this is no surprise, right? 
really no surprise that Jesus made people his priority. We read scripture and we see it, but think about the events that are unfolding. If there was ever a time where we were okay with Jesus kind of pulling away, going up on a mountainside or out in a boat on a lake by himself, this was it, right? He had just found out this incredibly difficult news. In fact, he is so moved that he gets on a boat and he goes out into the lake. Everywhere Jesus went, people gathered by the thousands. They wanted things from him. They wanted to bring their sick. They wanted to bring their hurt. They wanted to bring their needs. They wanted things from Jesus. And the only place Jesus thought he could go to get away from all these people was to go out in the middle of a lake because none of them would swim out there. So he gets with his disciples, and as often happens, he pulls out in the middle of the lake, and he just sits there going through all those emotions that you would have. I mean, imagine for a moment your greatest loss. Did you want to be around a bunch of people? Did you want a bunch of people saying, give me this, give me that? I mean, we know needy relationships. If you are a parent, you know what this is like. Like, I just need a break 10 minutes without asking for a snack, right? Or tie this or do that. Just a moment to not have to do these things. We have needy relationships in our lives. We have needy friends where we just want to not go to whatever that is because we know they'll be there and we know that that's going to take a lot of effort. Jesus withdraws to this boat. And when he gets to the other side of the lake, the people from the, the town around had gone around the lake by foot, right? They knew where Jesus was going. He was trying to get away. And they went around the lake by foot. And it says that when Jesus landed on the other side of the lake, he saw the crowds, right? We're talking now, we know at least 5,000. Women and children add to that probably closer to 7,500 or 10,000 people, right? He saw them all coming. And it says that he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. If there was ever a time for Jesus to get a break, this is it. But he shows up on the other side of the lake and there's thousands of people there. And he begins to heal their sick. Why? Because people brought their needs. This wasn't a hug fest. It wasn't a show up and Jesus, you're the greatest, best teacher ever. You are so awesome. We just want to say hi and get a a selfie with you or whatever. Like this was, do this for me. Look, here's what I've got. My daughter is dying. Please touch her. These are people with deep, real needs. And they all wanted something. Right? And they show up and Jesus lands on that and he has compassion on them. Jesus made people his priority. You and I are selfish by our very nature. It's just the reality of who we are. Our sinful nature, we are selfish. Now, we're not selfish when it's convenient, but as soon as things turn and things get difficult, we revert back to our own needs and our own desires. People are very seldom our true and first priority. Our true and first priority is usually us, me, myself. Once I'm good emotionally, once I'm good with my time, then fine. I'd love to be a part of your life. But as soon as things get difficult, people don't become the priority. Most of us that are going to do things for Thanksgiving know exactly what this is like. Like, I'm good for like three hours. Six, pushing my limits. Five days, like we're going to do, that's a lot for family, right? A lot. The reality is is that people are very seldom our priorities. The best way to find out the answer to this question about who is your priority is ask, let me ask the people in your life. What if I were to sit down with your wife and I were to say, what are the, what are the priorities? What are, your, what are your husband's priorities? What if I looked at your kids? 
It's easy to tell when you begin to ask the people around you because most of us think we're people-driven priority people, but really most of us are driven by ourselves. And I want to put this out there because Jesus, even in the midst of his most difficult emotional circumstance, probably outside of stepping into that Garden of Gethsemane where he would be handed over, outside of that moment, this may be the one singular moment where grief and hurt were the most real. And yet he walks onto that land off that boat and he has compassion for those people. Not one of them that we know about said, hey, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I just heard about your loss. Let us, let us love on you. You don't see that at all. He just has compassion on them and he heals their sick. How did he heal their sick? He did it incredibly in a personal way. I'll tell you about that in a minute. So he made people his priority. Jesus also created time and space. So the second thing I want you to know about Jesus, he created time and space. So he starts healing their sick and he heals them all the time until he runs out of daylight. Darkness is coming and the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Stop it. They've got to go. There is no more time for these people in our life. Because if we ask them to stay, not only do we need to feed them, but they're going to have to sleep somewhere. And in our lives, in our little worlds, there is no time for that. There's no time and space for all these people. And then Jesus, of course, has the most incredible statement ever, right? Where he says, no, don't send them away. You feed them. Right? And they're like, excuse me? Like, we can't feed them. You don't understand. Jesus created time and space for people, right? He made time. This miracle is about him making time for people to take care of their deep needs. We love people as long as they fit into our time frame and our lists and our categories. But the moment that they become more than that, they get really inconvenient, right? The moment that our, our sister-in-law deeply needs us at a moment that is deeply inconvenient for me, life gets really complicated. The reality is that for most of us, creating time and space for people is an act of convenience, not of priority. But if we're going to follow Jesus together, right, this picture is that we've got to be about people. We've got to be about, create, about creating time and space for them. Dying to ourselves and saying, I know I'm struggling. I know I'm wrestling. I know whatever it is, but God, you're going to use me in the life of people, and I want them to know you. And so I'm going to create time in my life for them. The greatest gift that you can give anyone, anyone, is you. It's your time. It's your time. Especially to start thinking about the holidays, the greatest gift that you can give someone is to create time and space for them. An hour to go eat lunch, to sit down with them, to go walking with them, whatever it is to create time and space. Now, I say all this to get us to a bigger place. Because we're gonna, I want to build on those priorities, but I want to get you to a bigger place because I want you to understand there's a couple of priorities in the middle of this that if we understand that our call is to be like Jesus, creating time and place, space for people, making them our priority, then there's some community kind of movements that we need to make together. Now, we can apply these to our lives individually, but I want you to think about them from the movement of our church, because this ultimately, I deeply believe, is a passage about people and a passage about stewardship of our lives and not so much about feeding 5,000 people, all right? So here are the principles I want you to understand. First one we kind of looked at already, and that is this. As a church, right, as a group of people, we need to make people, not program, our priority. Now, we mentioned this. Jesus was a priority-driven people, but you would be blown away how absolutely and frightening 
how easy it is to substitute people for program in the life of the church. The church begins to program its life. We create strategies, visions, mission visions, small group teams, mission teams, this, that, that. We create things that we begin to program driven by results and metrics and things like that. They become the driving force for what we do. And as we begin to grow and as we begin to put into strategies and we put together teams and events and things and programs quickly and unintentionally take the place of people. Think about it. How would the church newsletter frame this event that just happened? I can already tell you because I've written that article. Church picnic, huge success, 20,000 people fed. Right? We say 20,000 because the only time it's all right to lie in the church is when you're counting about numbers. The truth is every church does it. They look at the Christmas service like two, four, six, a thousand, thousand people here today. Now we counted the donut guy who dropped them off and the custodial staff that will be there on Monday. But they're going to be in the building, right? So we had 20,000 people at the church picnic. We fed them all. It was amazing. I can't believe you missed it. And we're guilting you into coming next time, Right? Because what we see is the programmatic event. That's how we tell it. Your Bible even says it. Look at verse uh, chapter 14, the subheading that was put in there, not by Matthew, by the way. Jesus feeds 5,000, right? That's not what this story is about. Program quickly substitutes for people. So here's how I think Jesus sees the story. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing by his other interactions that we see in Scripture. Because I think Jesus saw each individual heartbeat. It's, it's not a far leap to think that because this is what he did in Scripture. Because Jesus could have healed all these people with a wave of his hand. He could have been like, look, I am tired. My cousin just was murdered. So just everybody stand still for a minute. And he, with the magic hand wave, all of their ailments are gone. He was not confined to meeting with each individual person and saying, now tell me your need. Okay, you got a fever? What do you think it's running? About 100, 102? Great. Well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to touch it twice and it's going to go away. He didn't have to do that, right? He could have waved his hand over him. Everybody's healed. He heals the Roman centurion's daughter from miles away. He didn't need to. He could have done some kind of magic Jesus moment, but he doesn't. In fact, he heals them all individually, and he does it until he runs out of daylight. Why? Because sitting in that crowd was some guy named Alexander who brought his three-year-old daughter. And he said, my heart is breaking because she's about to die. And Jesus, in the only way that he could, of course, that's not the story. I'm just giving you an example. But he looks at her and he says, what's wrong? And he touches her. It's the same reason that he took the deaf guy off to the side of the road, and he basically said, let me heal you, and he takes his fingers and he puts them in the guy's ears. He didn't have to do that, but he touched the guy right where the world said he was broken. All day long, Jesus met with 5, 75, 10,000 people, whatever. He met with all of them and they brought their sick and he healed them until dark. Until dark, he healed them. And I find this remarkable because I think Jesus would never have subtitled that experience of, hey, I fed 5,000, it's pretty awesome. It's really, I'm really good at this or whatever. You know, I think he would have said, I met this guy and his daughter and they were changed by what we did. The church substitutes that. I mean, we substitute it so quickly and it's so frightening, frightening to me how fast we do that so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, look how many people got saved. Jesus is calling this Lent. 
frightening how fast we can turn that corner so that we can pat ourselves on the back and say, look what we did, look at what we built, look at what we've done. 20,000 people, right? Frightening. And we forget in the moment, in that moment, that out of those 20,000 people, they had names and they had heartbeats and they had stories. Jesus made people a priority and created time and space for them as a church we have got to continue at every, at fight at every cost to make people not program the priority. And it is already beginning to happen with us. We are already driven towards things, towards programs, towards other stuff. And it's frightening how quick we can switch to that from the singular heartbeat that walks in this door and says, I just, I'm broken without Christ. So as a church, priority and principle number one, people, not program have to be the priority always always we begin telling stories at 20,000 at the picnic let me go push me out the door go find somebody else because we have missed it all right so number two the second thing I want you to see comes out of that is that we need to confess that we are short-sighted all right and make a declaration together to trust Jesus now it's in our nature not to trust it's just really who we are if I can see it if I can touch it If I can explain it, if I can control it, then I trust. But the moment something exists outside of what those things are, right, the moment it's unexplainable, all of a sudden I come into this conflict with who God is. The moment that God calls me to something that doesn't have a tangible kind of outcome that I can see or a way that it's going to happen, I panic. I say I trust you, but my life demonstrates none of that. Instead, it demonstrates worry, fear, and anxiety. Church is the same way. God calls us to radical, amazing things, and we are all in as long as we have a tangible strategy or a financial picture of how that's going to happen. The reality is we're short-sighted, and there's nothing we can do to fix it. The disciples were the same way, right? So the crowds gather. Jesus heals their sick all day long, comes to the end of the day, and they panic, and they say, Jesus, hey, we like what you're doing here. It's really great, but here's the thing. We got 20,000 people, because we counted, 20,000 people here, and it's getting dark, and we're going to have to feed them if we don't send them away. So let's send them out to the towns to go feed themselves. And Jesus' response is incredible. He says, don't send them away. You feed them. Not us, not whatever. He says, you feed them. And they go, well, yeah, that's impossible. In fact, Mark actually recalls, records them saying this. They come back to him and they say, It would take eight months' wages for us to go and buy enough bread to just feed them once. Which isn't a statement. It's more of a declaration of absurdity. They say, we get it. You're kind of crazy, but here's the thing. None of us have jobs. Right? We gave it up. We're walking with you. Eight months' wages? We're going to go to the bread store and rob it? Like, we're going to come back here and give everybody a piece of bread, and they're full for an hour? That's crazy talk. So what does Jesus do? He says, what have we got? And he uses, and I'll show you this in a minute, these resources to feed people. The disciples are short-sighted. Why? Because there was no logical answer. They're not wrong. Jesus said, feed 20,000, 10,000, whatever people. They've got nothing. No jobs, we got no money, we got no jobs, our pets' heads are falling. You see, dumb, 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 heads are falling off. <laughs> For some of you, some not. So here's the deal. They say, we can't do this. They weren't wrong. They literally weren't wrong. 
same way? God calls us to something extraordinary. What have we got? How do we do that? How could it possibly happen? I mean, it doesn't make sense. And as a church, we have got to confess this. So what if the disciples would have done this? What if they would have stopped for a minute and just said, okay, so Jesus, I know you told us to feed him. And we've actually seen you do some incredible things. Everything from changing water to wine to healing people to calming storms. So we've seen you do the miraculous. But we don't know how we can do this. It doesn't make sense to us. We don't have any money. We don't have anything. But we trust you. So just show us what to do. It may be a dream and it may be a far off dream, but that's my deep desire for my life and for us as a church. Is that instead of going, well, that doesn't make sense, we would say, okay, we don't have any idea how this is going to happen. But Lord, we trust you. I mean, God has called us to a pretty lofty mission or vision. Like our heart as a church is that we would love much and love well as we take the gospel to the one, the individual, the city, our community, and the world. Have you looked around this room? We're not real big. We don't have a big staff. We don't have a lot of resources. We don't have a marketing department. I mean, we barely have a printer, right? And we're supposed to go and take the gospel out there. There are a bunch of churches that are better suited to do that. It's a ridiculous mission. Or is it? Because if God has called us to, what would it look like if we said, okay, it is crazy. But we believe in who you are. And so just tell us what to do and let us trust you. It would be a game changer. So as a church, if we made people and not program our priority and we confess that we are going to be short-sighted, there's no amount of vision that we can do to fix that. I can't make some cute little fancy three-word alliteration with a Christian graphic and everybody says, yes, let's make that happen. It's not going to work because it's impossible. Is what Jesus calls us to never makes sense. I mean, imagine you're a disciple and Jesus says, you feed them. Makes no sense. When Jesus calls us to things as a church and as individuals, it almost never makes sense from a worldly standpoint. So what do we do? We develop a two-year strategy with a master plan and vision, right? We do a bunch of surveys and a bunch of gatherings together, and we write up a plan, and all the words rhyme, and we raise enough money and we do enough things, we put it in place. It's not terrible, but it's a lot of this going, Jesus, what are we going to do? Go get jobs? I mean, come on. Instead of just saying, show us, like, let us trust you. What if we did this in our own lives? Jesus, I know you're calling me to something crazy, radical, just to trust you with my finances. What if I actually did that? What if I actually said, it does not make sense to give to these people in my life. But I believe you're calling me to, and so I'm just going to trust you. You see what I'm getting at? Like, this is a picture, a story about these disciples saying, okay, we trust you. So people not program the priority, right? We, we got to confess that we're short-sighted. We're short-sighted, Jesus. Show us how to trust you, right? And then together, we need to take what we have and offer it to Jesus. So Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, you feed them. And they say, we can't. We got nothing. And Jesus says, what do we have? Mark says, what do we have? And then John's gospel, right? John's gospel says, Here's what we've got. We've got a, a young boy, and he's got a basket, and it's got five barley loaves in it and two fish. Now, barley loaves was poor people's bread. 
It was bread that was made out of barley, not good grain. It was throwaway bread. And there's a little boy over here that's got a basket full of five loaves of poor people's bread and two small fish. And he offers it to the disciples, and they take it over to Jesus, and they say, this is what we've got. This is the winner, man. All these people are going to eat with this. Surely you're crazy. But you can have it. And they gave it to him. Jesus looks in, in John, he tells him, he says, go sit everybody down in groups of 50. So the disciples walk amongst the crowd, they sit them all down, I guess, on this massive, big area of groups of 50. And Jesus, before all of them, takes this basket of kids' bread, poor bread and two fish, and he says, God, thank you. And he blesses it right there. And then he gives it to the disciples, and he says, go ahead, feed everybody. Five loaves, two fish. And as they begin to feed people, it just begins to go. And it begins to spread, and it just begins, and everybody eats. Everybody eats. Here's what I find amazing about this story, is that Jesus could have, like he could have healed people, he could have created bread out of thin air. I mean, this is God. This is the God that provided bread from heaven, manna, for 40 years from the, for the Israelites wandering around the desert. They would wake up in the morning and it was on the ground. That's just, this is that same God that could have just made bread happen, right? In fact, we know this. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan takes Jesus out into the wilderness and he tempts him, saying, you're the son of God. And he tempts him a bunch of ways. And one of the ways, after fasting for 40 days, he says, Jesus, I know you're hungry. And because you're the son of God, take that rock and turn it into a loaf of bread. You know what Jesus says? He says, to, he says this right back to the enemy. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Meaning, of course, I could turn that rock into bread, but that's not really what I need. Jesus could have fed everyone. This is Jesus. What does he do? He says, what do we have? Bring it to me. And they brought their collective resources from this little poor kid and his loaves of bread and fishes, and Jesus uses it to do perhaps what is the single greatest miracle outside the resurrection in all the New Testament. Do you know this miracle is the only miracle that all four Gospels record? All four. This was a big deal. And he uses those resources to do something miraculous. I think this is a picture of what it means for the church to bring our little things to the Lord and basically say, look, I don't have much, but you can have what I have. And Jesus does incredible things with them. What if we as a community said, look, here's our poor people bread, right? It's all I've got. Not a lot, but you can have it. And if we all brought our things together and said, you've called us as a crazy, incredible mission of, of, of taking the gospel, loving each other much and well, and taking the gospel to the world. Like, we don't really know how we're going to do that, but we bring you what we have and we trust you. So... Here's our crummy little loaves of bread and our couple of fish and, and, and here. And when we put them all together, Jesus does something remarkable. I mean, it's basically the story of our existence anyway. I mean, look around you, right? We're just a messed up group of people from all different walks of life, ages, backgrounds, histories. We're not the fine, most finely tuned machine ever created. We're just people. And yet God has called us this incredible thing. And if together we said, look, I've got a couple loaves of poor people bread and some fish. Like, Jesus, you get it. If we all were to do that together, to just say, take what we have, the miraculous movement of God would be incredible. And has been incredible. 
year after year after year for us. So we have to offer what we have together to Jesus. And then finally, what I want you to see is that we have to celebrate the beautiful moments. So imagine for a moment, if you were, you were these disciples that are just kind of basically ridiculed Jesus and called him absurd, right? And he takes these loaves of bread from this little kid and he multiplies them around. Listen to what happens at the end as they go back and pick them all up. They're picking up all these bread. Verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Remember that we're fed about 5,000, not counting men and women. Think it's any coincidence at all that there's 12 baskets, that each disciple's probably holding one, right? They go around and pick them up, all 12 disciples holding a basket of bread going, well, that was interesting. Like now, I mean, can you imagine the excitement of seeing something like this? Being part of such deep disbelief, basically offering to Jesus a bunch of poor bread and fish and saying, go for it. And then watching what happens as you unfold and people just keep eating and eating and eating and you pick up all the leftover. Would you not come back and be like, this is the most incredible thing we've ever seen. Now, I know we're reading into this text a little bit when we say this, but I promise you, these guys were not the same. This is the only story all the Gospels tell. This is a powerful moment. And they probably were looking at each other like, can you believe this? Like we had five loaves, now we've got 12 basketfuls left over after 10,000 people ate. This is incredible. This is incredible. It's miraculous. It's, It's a moment that we celebrate. They all go back and retell the story. They all retell it again. And now we're telling it 2,000 years later. We are so driven by results in our culture and completion of tasks that we move past things so quickly that we never retell beautiful moments in our own lives and in our church lives. We are task-driven. We are event-driven. And usually the only desire in a task or an event is to complete it and check it off. We make lists to do just that. And we feel very unfulfilled if we don't check those things off the list. So if you're like me, you rewrite things you've already done on your list so you can scratch it off. Because we are driven by the completion of tasks. The church is the same way. We lose sight so often of these incredible, beautiful moments because we want to write the article about what we've done. But we don't stop and celebrate the fact that not only did these people eat, but they had their sick and their broken healed. And the moment of a beautiful context gets lost when we think about the outcomes and the results of events. My point is this. In your own life and in our life as a church, we have to pause and celebrate beautiful moments. This Thanksgiving, I don't know what your plan is, what your story is, right? But there's got to be a moment in there that you will know you will never have again. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We are we short-sighted. What beautiful moment will you celebrate? Gathering in your family, or maybe you're just on your own, whatever it is, but what beautiful moment in these contexts do we celebrate? And as a church, like there will never be a time in our life again where we're three little three years old. 21st separate, celebrated our sort of three-year little movement here. There will never be another one of those. What if we paused and celebrated the fact, do you remember when? Do you remember when we were just trying to figure this out? Like hammering out a dream, feeling like God was calling for something and realizing that there was no money and no resources or no idea to do any of it? Who would ever really want to come to this thing? 
We've had those moments. And we're so driven by getting to whatever's next that usually, and I'm super guilty of this, that we don't stop and just say, God, you're amazing. You're so profound. You brought us out of here. Israel's entire history and all the Jewish celebrations are moments that are designed to stop and remember. You read the Old Testament. Every celebratory moment in the life of Israel was to stop and celebrate God's amazing movements on their behalf. Stop in your life, wherever you are, and celebrate God's movement, where he's brought you from, where he's taking you to. And as a church, let's make this part of our DNA. People, not programs, is a priority, period. Right? We have to confess that we're short-sighted and that we get, need to trust Jesus together to declare that. That if we bring our resources together, our little barley loaves, and lay them at the feet of Jesus, he would do huge things. And as we pause and remember these moments, celebrate them together and retell the story. This morning as we close in worship, what we're doing is just by way of not some kind of public display, but more so as an offering to the Lord, we're just inviting you to come and take that pledge card that's there. Now, look, here's the deal. If you're here for the first time or even for the first few times or even if you just don't want to call this church your home, that pledge card is not for you, all right? Period. End of story. It's not for you. Um, It's for those folks that have basically said, this is my home, my family. We ask you to think about us together, bringing our little barley loaves and fish to the Lord. And it's a symbolic movement to do that. And during this closing time in worship, we invite you to come down and drop them in these baskets as a way of saying, God, like here, I'm bringing my little mess or whatever this is to you so that together we're for the gospel, together. And as we kind of enter into worship, I encourage you to do that. And if you need to fill it out, take some time to do that. If you don't want to do it here, you don't have to. Take it home, mail it in, whatever. Or if you don't want to fill it at all, that's fine. Like, that's fine. God will provide for us, right? I'm not sweating that. But I want to have a moment together where we say, God, what if symbolically we said, we're bringing what we have, even though we don't know how this will all work together, to offer it to you. Because you are the God that does all things and calls us to do the good things. So as Don and our worship team lead us in worship, I invite you to, to stand there and, or sit there and contemplate what God is doing in your life. And as you feel led, come forward, drop it in the basket, and then return and remain standing as we close our time in worship together. Let's pray.